everything, everything is meaningless. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, look ag long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Wisdom is meaningless. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be countered. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The, no the more knowledge, the more grief. Pleasures are meaningless. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water, groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delight of a man's heart, of the heart of a man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, 
everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us uh, so clearly in the scriptures. And we, we thank you, Father God, that the, uh, the scriptures are there to, uh, uh, to, to inform us and to uh, rebuke us and to correct us, to challenge our thinking, uh, that we might be people who think your thoughts after you and uh, whose hearts would be inclined to seek after you. And so we pray not only for ourselves, but for the children in the Sunday school that we would all be uh, now nourished by your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, the list of the world's most expensive cities was released. And in the 30 most expensive cities in the world to live in, six of them are in Australia. Uh, Sydney... Melbourne, Perth, Brisbane, Adelaide and Canberra. Uh, which capital city is not on the list, by the way? Darwin's not actually a capital city. Hobart. Don't forget that Hobart, that Tasmania is still part of Australia. But uh, six cities, and, you know, really that's a lot, six out of 30, considering we actually don't have very many cities in Australia... And you don't have to be a genius to know why it's so expensive to live in Australian cities. It's because everyone wants to live there and it's the price of real estate. With uh, the, the median, that is the normal house price in Sydney, hovering around the $600,000 mark just for an ordinary house, then it's no wonder that, uh, that uh, the concept of owning your own home is slipping away from many families. Uh, many couples, uh, Australia-wide I guess, are dealing with the prospect that the, the thing which their parents and their grandparents always taught them was the great Australian dream is no longer a reality for them. Uh, many couples are, uh, are dealing with that uh, change in what, what is has been considered to be the fabric, part of the fabric of Australian uh, society. I was talking about this with a young professional couple in Sydney a few weeks ago and asked them how their friends and their workmates, their peers, how they're dealing with that. And the answer was this. They, they said to me that basically young people are giving up that dream and they're living a new and an affordable dream. Because uh, although housing has never been more expensive, uh, things like food and travel and entertainment and gadgets have never been so cheap. Uh, think about it. It used to be the case that to fly from Australia to Europe and back was the sort of thing that people did once in their lifetimes. Uh, this week, I know that you can book uh, flights from Sydney to Europe and back for one week's ordinary time earnings, about $1,300. Uh, what you do is you go Sydney, 
to Amsterdam and, and back on KLM. <laughs> I've checked, okay? And, and so what it's saying is that it's, it's cheap, it's, it's affordable. You can, you can do that. And so people are saying, well, if I can't have the house, then maybe travel, maybe seeing the world will be the thing which will make my life meaningful. Uh, or, and, uh, in addition, you could fill up your life with entertainment and technology. Uh, there is a never-ending supply of new and improved and cheaper gadgets on the market to enhance your life somehow. I mean, think of the iPad 2 uh, used to be, you know, that was, that was cutting edge until only 12 months later they released the iPad Three, and then you've all seen the pictures, haven't you, of hundreds of people camped outside the Apple stores around Australia overnight, just and and their faces against the pressed against the glass in the morning, waiting for the doors to open so they can rush in and get their hands on, as if that'll bring some sort of meaning uh, to life. But when do people press the pause button on life? When do people actually stop what they're doing and take a step back and reflect and ask the questions like, is it all worth it? Uh, will these things give me true meaning? What is life all about? I'm sure you'll be aware that there are many people who never ask those questions. It, it seems that uh, people... They, they live their lives blindly being drawn along by these dreams, the dreams of land, the dream of houses, the dreams of possessions, the dreams of good times, and they never stop and reflect and think, what's it all about? Will it bring me satisfaction? Now, in the Old Testament, there is a, a tantalisingly strange book that does actually ask these questions. Uh, it's the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which we're going to dig into over the next month or so. And I say it's tantalisingly strange because this is not your usual book of the Bible. Uh, it's a book which, which looks at life, it, it holds life up to us, and it it fires the hard questions at life, but it doesn't give us the luxury of easy answers. In other words, it's a book which makes us think. It wants us to think about these issues. And it does so by using one particular word over and over again. And it's the book which we see right at the word which we see right at the very beginning of the book. So I wonder if you might open up your Bibles at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 on page 472 because we see this word, this all-important word in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, in verse 2 where the author starts off by saying, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, life is meaningless, or everything is meaningless. Now, that is how the book starts. It starts on this note of meaninglessness. And then throughout the book, and you can see on the... I think I've put a, an outline of the structure of the book in your outlines there. 
throughout the book, there's, there's this kind of wave sort of uh, structure to Ecclesiastes. It starts off saying that everything's meaningless. And then the wave begins where the teacher uh, gives us observations about life. And then he gives instructions about life. And then he makes more observations about life. Then he gives instructions about life. Then he makes more observations and so on and so forth until you get to the very end. And if you turn over to chapter 12 for a moment, right at the very end of Ecclesiastes, what does he say as he comes to the end? In chapter 12, verse 8, he says, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. And so he says it's all meaningless. In fact, 37 times throughout this book, he says it's meaningless. Now, that's not the kind of thing you expect to see in the scriptures, is it? I mean, people go to the Bible because they want to find meaning. They want to find answers. They want to find... But here, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes says, no, 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 it's all meaningless. So what's it all about? Well, let's go back to the beginning, shall we? Uh, and, uh, and I'll say a few words by introduction in terms of the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1, verse 1, we're told by the author that these are the words of another person who is called the teacher. So in, in Ecclesiastes, you've got the author of Ecclesiastes who is quoting somebody else. Uh, you see that at the beginning. We see it at the end as well. And the person that he's quoting, he describes as being the teacher. There's another person, not the author, but the teacher. Now, I don't know if you've looked at Ecclesiastes before in other contexts. Uh, if you have, you may have sometimes heard the teacher referred to as Koheleth. Does, it, does that ring a bell for anybody? No? Well, there you go. You learn something new every day, don't you? Right? Uh, he's sometimes referred to as Koheleth. And the reason for that is that that's, that's the word in the Hebrew that's been translated as the teacher. But it's, it's an unusual word because we, we don't actually quite know how to translate it. Uh, it could be translated as the teacher or it could be translated as the preacher. It could be translated as the philosopher. Uh, it could be translated as the... Uh, uh, the, uh, the it, could, it could actually be translated as Ecclesiastes. That's the name of the book, isn't it? I'll tell you why that's the case. Because in the Hebrew word koheleth, uh, embedded in that word is the concept of a gathering of people. And uh, there's a Greek word for gathering, which is the word ecclesia. When you, that, that's, when you see the word church in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Greek, that's the word ecclesia. And so because uh, it, it, the koheleth implies a gathering or someone who presides over a gather, gathering of people, uh, translate that into Greek, and it's ecclesia, that's where you get the word ecclesiastes from. That's all a bit complex, isn't it? 
Right, let's, let's, de- let, let's get less complex for a few moments in that case. Um, what, what it's saying is that uh, uh, it, it may well be that this person who's being referred to is someone who presided over a gathering of God's people. And he goes on to say about the teacher that he is the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Now, who does that sound like? Who was the son of David who became the king in Jerusalem? Solomon, that's right. Sounds a lot like Solomon, doesn't it? Although, throughout the book, the author never actually calls the teacher by that name, Solomon. And uh, Bible scholars who know a lot more about this than I do have pointed out that it may not actually be that Solomon has written the parts that are referred to saying these are the words of the teacher. may not actually be, the, it might be the historical figure, Solomon, but it doesn't necessarily uh, have to be because in those days when uh, kings would often list their achievements, usually for boasting purposes, and they might list them in a written form. And it would have been acceptable for a a teacher or a philosopher type of person to set himself up or or to paint a picture of the king and list the king's achievements and then stamp the word meaningless across every one of those achievements in order to make a teaching point, as a, as a method of teaching. And so some say that it may not have been actually Solomon who's uh, being referred to here in a historical sense, but it might be as well. We just don't have enough evidence. And w- what I want to say, though, is that we are meant to read this as Solomon. <laughs> Whatever the case, we're meant to read it as Solomon. Who here speaks to us about what life is like under the sun. Now you see that in verse 3. Have a look in verse 3. He says in verse 3, What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? And that phrase, under the sun, is a phrase which keeps on cropping up uh, throughout Ecclesiastes. And it's, it's as if he's talking about Life without God. Life in a closed system. Life under the sun rather than life under heaven. Because in verse 13 there and in other parts of Ecclesiastes, when he actually introduces God into the discussion, he talks about life under heaven. But for the most part, he's talking about life under the sun life without God and and he poses the question what is what would life be like if there is no God and it makes you wonder sometimes how people make any sense of life if they want to say that God does not exist he says well I'll tell you what life is like if there is no God he says life is like an experimental rat running along on one of those wheels. You got that image in your mind now? This, this rat's expending so much energy but going nowhere. 
And he says life is like that. If you have a look at verse 4 and following, let me just sort of skim through. Let's skim through verse 4 down to verse 9 for a moment. In verse 4 he says, The generations come and the generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, it hurries back to where it rises from. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. He says, all of the streams, they flow into the sea, but have you noticed that the sea is never full? It's just a never-ending project of water flowing into the stream. And, and he says that the eye never has enough of seeing. You can't see everything in the world. There's always something more. You're never going to be fulfilled. The ear never has enough of hearing. There's always more things to, to hear. And, and, and he says that, and, and what has been will be done again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. He says it's just going round and round and round and round in circle. It's heading nowhere. You get born, you live your life, uh, you might produce some kids, create the next generation, and then, and then you die. And, and the same process gets repeated. Just living and being born, living, dying, being born, living, dying. And, and in verse 11, you know what? In a few generations from now, you know what you will amount to? You will be just another inquiry on Ancestry.com. Because people are not going to remember much about you. you know, people, you might, how many generations back can you, do you, are you aware of, do you know of? You, you know your parents, you know your grandparents, maybe your great-great-great-grandparents or great-great, but it doesn't go much. For, you know, the generations in the future... You'll just be an inquiry on Ancestry.com. And that's it. And he says, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Now, some people will say, well, hang on a moment. <laughs> that sounds very depressing. But the, the things which we do fill our lives with, they do give us meaning. And so the teacher says, okay, Let's take a look at some of those things and let's see how meaningful they are. And so he says, well, let's start off by talking about wisdom. That, that, that's a very noble thing to fill your life is, with, isn't it? To, uh, to grow in understanding and to be wise about the world. That's a very noble purpose. And he says, well, let's see if wisdom and knowledge gives us meaning and satisfaction. Have a look at verse 12. Verse 12, he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I've learnt this too, that it's a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Now Solomon, uh, he had to learn about his world by himself. And God had given him great, a great mind uh, to study. And he studied the, the, what he, plants and agriculture and everything that he could 
possibly learn about. He learnt for himself and he uh, tried to understand people and understand what was going on in his world and, the, and so on. Now, you and I, uh, we've got the advantage of media. If we want to know what's happening in our world, you just need to switch on the TV or the computer and uh, uh, you'll get the news of the day and you can... It's pretty depressing sometimes, isn't it? You think about the news that uh, you've read about in the papers just this last week, um, people destroying one another in Syria, uh, you learn about uh, people, a guy murdering his wife and, uh, and so on. And that's the same every week, isn't it? There was one bit of good news this week. Do you remember what it was? Sorry? Michelle saw something about... See any good news in the media this week? Something about whales? That's, that's good news, yeah. No? Nothing? Exactly. State of origin. Uh, state of origin. Uh, the blues one. Uh, we haven't done that for a long time. But... Someone, the point that he's making here is that the more you understand, uh, and as Solomon, as he looked at his world, he saw more of sin, he saw more of people mistreating one another in injustice and suffering, and in the end he had to conclude that the more I, the more I, the more I, the more I learned, the more sorrowful I became. And someone has said, and I think it's right, to, that life is like an onion. Uh, you peel it off layer by layer and sometimes you cry. That's true. So the teacher then says, well, okay, wisdom, knowledge, that didn't get me anywhere. What about pleasure? Does having a great time bring meaning to life? And so in, verses two, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he says, well, I tried my hand at partying, just going out, having a good time, drinking lots of wine and partying. And, and he says, and it really didn't satisfy. Just sort of gave me a headache in the end. That wasn't where meaning was to be found. Now, of course, Solomon was fabulously rich. So he tried his hand at possessions. Let's have another look at those verses in verses 4 through to 11. Um, where he says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself in the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Now, you think that uh, gaining more possessions is going to make you satisfied. You think that having the bigger house, the, the better car, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the greater luxuries, that somehow if you if only had those things, then life would be so much more meaningful and satisfying. 
Let me tell you about a guy I read about in the paper called Carl Raderbeder. Carl uh, Raderbeder was, he's still alive, but he was a very wealthy businessman. Uh, he made his money through setting up a, a, a business that sold furniture and internal uh, decor. And he was very successful. He became very rich. Uh, in an interview a couple of years back, he said this, and I quote, For a long time, I believed that more wealth and luxury automatically meant more happiness. I come from a very poor family where the rules were to work more, to achieve more material things. I wonder if you've ever thought that way yourself. I wonder if in your own family background you've been taught that you really just need to work hard, work more and achieve more material things. Well, this man uh, came from that background and that is what he did and he succeeded as well. Uh, he ended up only owning a villa with, with his own private lake uh, with a sauna, uh, with uh, majestic views of, of the Austrian Alps. Uh, he owned a, uh, a, a farm with a, uh, with a, with a rustic uh, stone farm cottage. Uh, for, for pleasure and for sport, he thought he'd try his hand at, at gliding, you know, in planes without motors. <laughs> And he ended up with a collection of six gliders. And he and his wife would uh, travel the world, uh, staying in five-star hotels everywhere they went. He said that we had so much money that we tried to spend as much as we could, but we still couldn't spend all of the money. Um, some people would say it's a nice problem to have. <laughs> but... The reality for him was that he ended up by saying this. He said, I quote, I had the feeling that I was working as a slave for things I did not wish for or need. It was the biggest shock in my life, he said, when I realised how horrible, how soulless and without feeling the five-star lifestyle is. End of quote. Uh, the reason he was in the media was because he'd made a decision to sell it all and give the money to the poor. If only he'd read Ecclesiastes when he was young. Because the teacher wants us to learn the easy way, not the hard way. He doesn't want us to waste our lives pursuing things that ultimately cannot satisfy. I remember, I think I've mentioned to you before, I read John Leonard said once, he said, I was really, really happy that I became filthy rich when I was so young because I didn't have to waste my whole life only to discover that it didn't give me meaning. And I think it's true. The teacher wants us to learn the easy way. Solomon had pleasure. He had real estate. He had gold. He had livestock. He had servants. He was the Bill Gates of the ancient world. He was the Sultan of Brunei who has, I understand, in his garage 5,000 luxury vehicles. But gentlemen, 
Solomon was much more than that. I say gentleman because in verse 8, in verse 8 he had a harem, a thousand women that he could choose from any time. The delights of the heart of man. You reckon he'd be satisfied? But no. He tells us that trying to find satisfaction that way was like chasing after the wind. He said, you, you, you just can't catch it. It just keeps on slipping through your fingers and in the end, uh, it just fails to satisfy. Now, this is a, are you feeling depressed by this so far? Anyone feeling? Uh, well, I, I can make you more depressed if you like right? because, because it gets worse. It gets worse because what he goes on to say is he said, look, in the end, it, it actually doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are because have you ever seen a hearse towing a trailer? No, because you can't take it with you. And, and, and this is the frustration that he, that he expresses in chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, where he says that after you die, you've got no control over what happens to all the assets that you've spent your life building up. I mean, you can hire an expensive lawyer to try to give you an absolutely watertight will, (laughs) but there's always a more expensive lawyer to undo the watertight will. And in any case, you don't know what the person who inherits your stuff is going to do with it. You don't know if he's a wise person or a foolish person and you've got no control. But that's the frustration he expresses in chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. And what does he, include, what does he conclude there? He says it is all just meaningless. Absolute rot. It's just meaningless. Now... In the first century AD, and I'm, we're talking about New Testament times, uh, there was a debate amongst some of the Jewish religious leaders, some of the rabbis, uh, because they really were debating about what do you do with the book of Ecclesiastes? Uh, some of the Pharisees uh, wanted it to be, and I quote, stored away. They wanted this book to be stored away. Put it on a shelf somewhere, lock it up somewhere, let it gather dust. Uh, Whatever you do, just don't let people read Ecclesiastes. Don't have it read in the synagogues. Don't have it read in the temple. Uh, You'll be pleased to know that the Judaism rejected that idea. and actually made uh, the book of Ecclesiastes a, a key part of the, um, their, their worship, and particularly with respect to the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. I might say more about that in a coming week. But friends, this is a book that everybody needs to read. Everybody needs to hear the message of Ecclesiastes. Because in our attempt to find meaning in life, what we do is we, we actually we actually cover over the true meaning in life. 
with things. Things like possessions, things like money, things like pleasures, things like the life of struggling to achieve the great Australian dream or the life of pleasure, travelling the world, eating fine foods, the latest gadgets and so on. And what Ecclesiastes does is Ecclesiastes, well, it's like a can of paint stripper and it strips away all of those things in order to expose what is our real need. You see, this passage actually finishes on a slightly positive note uh, in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, because the teacher has exposed our need to find meaning and satisfaction not in things, but rather in the one from whose hand these things come. Our non-Christian friends need to hear this message from us, from you and me. But if they look at our lives and if they see that we are just chasing after the things that everybody else is chasing after, then we don't have a message for them. But if they look at our lives and they see that we are actually people who have a, a certain contentment in life, a peace and a joy and a happiness, and are not chasing after everything that the world tells us to be chasing after, then they may actually look at us and think, hey, maybe that person's got something that I don't have. Maybe that person's got something that I need. I might even ask you what that something is. Jesus once said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So let me ask you, have you found that fullness in life? That fullness which fills the emptiness, the void. That fullness that comes from loving your creator and trusting in the one who died and rose for you? Or are you still chasing the wind? Just remember something else that Jesus once said. When he said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but yet forfeits his soul? Don't chase after the winds, friends. Find that peace, that joy, that satisfaction, that meaning in the one from whom all of those things come. All right, well, more from Ecclesiastes next week as we look at uh, chapters 3 and 4. And think about the question of, more about the question of, uh, of life without God and what atheism uh, leads to. But uh, can I just lead us in the time of prayer as we reflect on some of those things? Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this uh, penetrating uh, passage from your word that, uh, exp that uh, really does clear away some of the stuff in our lives and helps us to think about what will really give us satisfaction and joy. And Father, we pray for ourselves that we would not be people who are chasing after the wind, 
but rather that we would find our joy and our peace and satisfaction and meaning uh, in knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. And we pray, Father God, that that would be evident to those around us. And that uh, you might even draw some to asking questions, some of the real questions, and that we might have the answers for them. And so we pray these things now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, well,